The pursuit of joy is a universal human endeavor. All of us want a life of happiness and contentment, but the circumstances of life seem to undermine that pursuit at every turn. Philippians is a letter written by a man named Paul from a jail cell in Rome, and though his circumstances are grim, he writes of a joy found not in our where we are, but rather in who we are and who we know. For in Jesus, there is always reason to rejoice. Well, good morning, Tri-City Church. It is, uh, it is great to be with you. Uh, I was sharing with the first, the first gathering that um, uh, just being here and seeing faces, uh, many of them I know, but obviously many that I don't, and just recalling just the story and the lead up to, uh, to the planting of this ministry, and then just seeing you here today and knowing how things have gone over the last couple of months, it's just just a really full, t- just, it's full for me. It's, my heart is full. Um, and my joy to be with you. Uh, we pray for you often. Uh, I can say that with integrity. We stay in contact, obviously, and we love hearing the stories. Uh, it's always bittersweet for me personally because I see a lot of faces that I don't see as much anymore. And uh, there's part of me that's excited for uh, the involvement of people that uh, I did know in the past. They're involved here now. Uh, but there's that, a- that aspect of just missing. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, so it's good to see. And then you remember what you don't see as much or who you don't see as much. And so, uh, so I have all sorts of emotions going through, going through my mind as I stand before you. But thank you for the invite. Um, also, thank you specifically to Matt for giving me the text that he gave me to speak out of today. It is, I have many favorite texts, uh, but this is certainly um, the, one of the greatest and, and most favorite for me. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. And so I invite you to turn there. It is so so good and rich and full that I don't want to spend any time preliminating it. I just want to get right into it, all right? It's that good. I don't have to give a, an intro illustration. Um, and so, and so, let's just get right into it. And I want to do that by having you look down at verse one. I'll, I'll kind of go, uh, go through this step by step with you. But let's begin by looking at just verse one. I'll stop and and give you some comments, and then we'll go from there. Paul writes, "Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you." Like I said, we just stop there for now. All I want you to notice at this point, and I want you to just notice it, but just realize we're going to come back to it, is first of all, I want you to notice the instruction or the command of Paul in verse 1. The, the instruction Paul gives to the Philippian church and by association gives to us is to rejoice in the Lord. So just remember that, that instruction, rejoice in the Lord. But what I also want you to notice in verse 1 is the promise to those who rejoice in the Lord. Paul says... I want you to rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. I'm writing the same things to you. It's no trouble for me to do this. But then he says, and it's safe for you. So there's the promise. Rejoice in the Lord for it's safe for you. Just keep that in mind. We're going to come back to it. Verse two, verse two follows with a warning. In fact, it's a threefold warning, all encapsulated in these words, look out, or the instruction, the warning to look out or watch out for. Look at verse 2. I'll read it for us. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Okay, stop there. Now, who is this? I mean, it sounds like a Friday night on commercial drive, right? This group. Now, if you're not going to laugh at that, that's the best I got for you this morning. So I'm going to feel very, really lonely. Who are these dogs? 
Who are these evildoers? Who are these people who mutilate the flesh? I mean, who is he calling us to be warned of here? What a, what a crazy group of people. Well, we don't know exactly, but verse 3 does give us a hint. So let's look at verse 3. Paul goes on, for we are the circumcision. Any good message has to have some aspect of circumcision involved with it, it seems. Uh, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus or boast in Christ Jesus and put no, no confidence in the flesh. So what we have is we have a contrast going on between verses two and three. And verse three helps us at least a little bit with this question of who Who is Paul talking about? For Paul states we have to be looking out for these guys. And then he says, because we are these guys. So look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh because we are the circumcision. And we know Paul's not talking about real, actual, physical circumcision because he defines what they are, meaning who Paul and the Philippian church is. We are those who worship by the Spirit of God and... Just look at it again, glory or boast in Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So going back to our other question, who's verse two? Well, I think what we can assume based on verses two and three and what we know about the church at this time is that Paul is referring to those people at the time, these groups, these rogue groups who had some measure of success infiltrating into the early church with a message that said Jesus wasn't enough. This, this, is some, this is a group that's sometimes referred to as the Judaizers, sometimes referred to as the Jesus and people. They're not anti-Jesus. They're for Jesus. It's just that Jesus, again, isn't enough. Jesus was an addition. Jesus and the law. Jesus and the ceremonies. Jesus and the observances. Jesus and the feasts. Jesus and circumcision. So yes, follow Jesus, but don't give, don't give up that which is part of our history, the Jewish faith, the Old Testament instructions, the Mosaic law, all of those things tied into it with one of the most prominent aspects depicting who you were was this act of circumcision. It was a big deal. Along with Sabbath keeping and dietary laws and cleansing laws, circumcision was a big deal. In fact, circumcision was such a big deal that in the dawn of the early New Testament church, the first church council, the very first one, recorded for us in Acts chapter 15, spends its time, this coming together of the early church leadership, discussing this issue. And the issue centered on if people are coming to faith, but this faith comes from the Jews, right? Jesus himself said to the Samaritan woman, faith is from the Jews, meaning God works through the Jews to bring to fruition his story, but it's not just for the Jews, it's for Jews and Gentiles, right? That's salvation, that's the gospel message. So the, the, the confusion for people was, well, what should we do? These Gentile people are coming to faith, should we have them carry on our customs or not? Because this has been a big deal to us. So the council came together, they wrestled with it, Peter finally stepped up and he said, it's no longer necessary. No longer necessary. In fact, Paul sums it up, and you can look at it on the screen behind me, saying this in Galatians 5, 6, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith in Jesus working through love. So there it is. Should be over. Should be done. It's been ruled on, right? It's been set. Council is ruled. Council is stated. 
The only problem was it wasn't settled for certain people. There were still pockets. There were still these rogue groups that were weaseling their way into these early church contexts. And they were preying on people's consciences and saying, no, they're wrong. You, in fact, have to carry on with it. You have to carry on with it. And sometimes they would add other rules and regulations and, 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 and uh, the, the outpouring of asceticism, marriage and dietary laws, all of this t- stuff. And Paul is addressing it here and saying, if you're going to follow them, especially as it relates to the act of circumcision, and you can see the language he uses, then all you're doing is mutilating the flesh. Not to get too graphic with you, but that's the reference. That's all you're doing. It counts for nothing. You're just mutilating the flesh. But I also want you to notice how Paul refers to this group, these individuals. He refers to them in verse 2 as dogs. Now, I know we like dogs, but that's not the association he's using this word. He's like, hey, that's nice. He's calling them sweet little puppies. He's not doing that. He's calling them dogs, right? They're dogs. Dogs was an expression that was most often associated in the scriptures with those outside the faith. In fact, if you go to the last chapter of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 22, I believe it's in verse 15, John, the writer there, states that on the outside of this new Jerusalem are the dogs. They're not in. So just hear what Paul is saying. They're dogs. These individuals are dogs. Not only dogs, they're evildoers. Evildoers. But not evildoers because they were out raping and pillaging. Evildoers, why? Because they were calling people to add something to the work of Jesus. Saying Jesus isn't enough. You need to do a little more. You need to cut, cut that, give up that, stop that. You need to do more. And, and Paul says they're evil. Why? Because they were attempting to people into thinking that, again, the work of Jesus wasn't enough. Therefore, they were bringing a gospel that wasn't a gospel at all. They were preying on people. And Paul says, that's it's evil. And he speaks into it here. And he speaks into it with great language. He's strong. He's also strong in the book of Galatians. He talks about this group being accursed. Sharing, again, a gospel that's not a gospel at all. You can read about that in places like Galatians 1 and 2. In contrast, Paul says that they were the true circumcision. And I say true circumcision, again, because he's not talking about actual circumcision. But I want you to notice in verse 3 how he defines true circumcision. He defines true circumcision as, number one, evidence by their worship. They worshiped in the spirit, In other words, their their worship was spirit-induced. To put it another way, their worship expressed an internal change. It wasn't just an act of piety. It was a change of the heart. Their, Their hearts being expressed in their acts, in their singing, in their lives. It was a demonstration that they'd been changed. So it's evidence in their worship. It was also evidenced in their boasting or what they gloried in. And what did they glory in? Oh, Tri-City, look at what they gloried in. They gloried in Jesus. 
They made much of Jesus. In other words, not Jesus and Jesus alone. Just Jesus alone. The other group, let's add something to Jesus. Paul, no, Jesus. We glory in Jesus. We boast in Jesus. It's his work. And then he adds this, stating this. It's evidenced in their perspective. They put no confidence in their own efforts of the flesh, which is where Paul goes next. Let's look at verses four to six. Paul writes, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is great, right? We love Paul. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the people of Israel, excuse me, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to the as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul, just so you know, is not bragging here. Just in case you thought that. He's not bragging. He's actually being a good pastor. He's being a good leader. He's, he's, he's teaching a church that he loves. In your series already, you see the affection and the joy and the belovedness that Paul has for this group of people. So he's not bragging about himself. What he's saying in verses four to six is, look, look, Philippian church, look, if you are considering this teaching, a teaching that states that physical acts and observances are necessary to attain a right standing before God, then let, let, me share you, let me share with you my story. For if anyone could put confidence in the flesh, it's me. If there is anybody that could stand before God and go, let me in based on my track record, it's me. And then what we have in verses four to six is Paul's resume. So let's take a look at the seven aspects that he highlights from his past. First, circumcise on the eighth day. What's the big deal about that? Well, number one, it followed to the T the directions given to Abram and how and when circumcision was to be carried out. Jewish infants were to be circumcised on the eighth day. So why is he highlighting this? Well, he's not just highlighting the fact that they, he carried it out on the eighth day. He's highlighting it because he's not a Johnny-come-lately. Like these individuals who are being grafted in and getting circumcised at 20, 30, 40, 50. He's an eight-day circumcised kid. That's number one. Number two is he's of the people of Israel. Okay, good. Why, why is that a big deal? Because he's not a Gentile. He's an Israel kid. He's not from another nation. He's not one of those. So I followed this to the T. I'm from the nation of Israel. Not only that, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, why is that a big deal? Twelve tribes originally made up the nation of Israel. Two stayed loyal to the, to the throne or the line of King David. One was Judah, the other Benjamin. The other ten fell away. Intermarried, Samaritan people, that type of thing. The history of the people of Benjamin and Judah was a good one. You would brag about being part of this family. You would boast about it. You, you stayed loyal. This is your history. So Paul is saying, I'm not only from Israel, I'm from Benjamin. I'm from Benjamin. But he's not done. He sums this first part of his resume 
up with the expression, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Jew's Jew. He's got good blood, good lineage, good history, good people, good faithfulness, good story, no skeletons in the closet. I'm that guy. That's, that's my family. So you're thinking you're going to be okay and you come from another nation and you get circumcised and you're 25 and your family is, you're not even one of the 12 originally. Well, let me show you who I am. But then he's, he carries on. He gives three as to's. The first at the end of verse five, as to the law of Pharisee. In other words, he wasn't just a good devoted follower of Judaism He was a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were meticulous in carrying out the law. They tithed on their spices. They fasted twice a week. They prayed three days, three times a day. Uh, They were so meticulous in keeping the Sabbath that they added 31 regulations to Sabbath keeping. Just as an example. Oral law, oral law, oral law, traditions following, making sure that they guarded the written law given to them. He's one of those guys. So you, you're devoted? Look at me. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So devoted was Paul to protecting his tribe. He arrested and, if necessary, killed Christians. But he was the leader of it. He wasn't just part of the group. He was the one when Stephen was killed, they brought the clothes of Stephen and they laid it at the feet of Saul. So not just a Pharisee, he's a Pharisee's Pharisee. And then lastly, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, I don't believe Paul is saying here that he is sinless without sin, that he was absolutely perfect. Although I am sure that Paul had a very high view of himself pre-Jesus. But I think instead he is saying that you couldn't have picked out any inconsistencies of my life at that time. Again, no skeletons. I I did and I said and I said and I did. You've you've just watched me. I followed it. That was me. So just wrap up his resume. And understand the context. If you think circumcision is important, I followed the practice down to the T. And if you think Jewish lineage is important, I'm a blue blood. And if you think law keeping is important, no one has been more committed to it than me. A flesh-based resume doesn't get any better than Paul's. Which is why he writes, if anyone thinks they have a reason for confidence, I got more. Bring it. I got more. Paul, again, was the tip of the human effort spear. He's not bragging. He is simply stating fact, which is what makes verse 7 so beautiful. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Verse 7 is one of those, just, it's such a sweet, sweet verse. It's, 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 it's a wonderful but. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And we should amen that. 
I mean, there you go. Amen. Amen. I'm amen in myself. Amen. We, we should aim. I, I, love, I love this. Obviously, I love this. But if you find the layout of verse 7 awkward, you're not alone. Let me explain what I mean. If you consider what Paul has done thus far, he's laid out his resume, he's noted these seven things, it would make sense coming out of that if Paul wrote something like, but I gave it all up when I met Christ. Or something like, but Jesus called me to leave it all behind. Or something like, but I lost it all because of Jesus. Something like that. That would make total sense. I had this. I met Jesus. I gave it all up. I lost it all. He called, he called me to leave it all behind, but he doesn't say that. Look at it one more time. But whatever gain I had, I counted as lost or lost for the sake of Christ. That word counted, sometimes translated regarded or considered in your Bibles, is really important because Paul is saying all of those things that I just stated to you about who I was, I now consider as loss. I consider them differently. Therefore, Paul isn't saying that he lost out. He's saying that the things that he had placed such high value on are things he now considers as lost. In other words, that's the value he places on them now. They have no value. They have no value. When I look back in my rear view of my life there, that stuff, no value. The question is why? Paul, tell us why this has no value. Those things have no value. Let me give you two reasons why. The first, for they provide no assurance for a right standing before God. No assurance. Like they're of no value. So back in the day, I thought I could stand before God one day and I go, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. But now when I look back, I would have nothing. I brought nothing. If I walk down that path, nothing it has no value. Which should cause us, if we right now are thinking that we can attain right standing before God by our works, it should cause us to shudder. That we are thinking perhaps that we're going to bring a lot before God and lay it down. And God will say that has no value. In fact, it's less than zero. They say, well, how can you say the things that I do have no value? Hear me, because I'm not against good works. It's a whole other message. I'm not against good works. But I am if you think that will attain salvation for you, then I will be very clear that has no value. Works never lead to salvation. But, here's the other message, and I'll leave this up to Matt to carry forward at one point. With works never lead to salvation, but salvation always lead to work. Always. It has to. So works never salvation. Salvation always works. Where Paul is is on the front part. I thought this, my nationality, my customs, my, my, my following the regulations would lead me to that standing. And he said, no, no. Now I see it is, it's less than zero. But secondly, he states that they are as loss 
And please see it. It's so, so precious. Because of what he got in return. What did he get in return? He got Jesus. He got Jesus. Paul gave up that which has no value and in exchange gained he who is priceless. That's verse seven. So just so we're clear, Paul isn't saying, hey, look at me and see all the things I gave up to follow Jesus. Only the opposite, in fact. Shouldn't surprise us, actually. For the fact is, giving up all this world offers and getting Jesus in return doesn't make you a hero or a martyr. It makes you the most blessed of benefactors. That's why I can say with assurance, Paul isn't saying, look at what I gave up. He's saying, I gave up nothing and I got Jesus. It is interesting, isn't it? When you look at Paul's life, he holds himself up as the supreme example of two ends of the spectrum. Here he holds himself up as the supreme example of one attempted to attain right standing before God in his own strength and power and works, etc. Right? Like, if you think you got it, I got more. So supreme example. Then you go to the first chapter of 1 Timothy and he holds himself up as a supreme example again. He says, I just want you to know, everybody, I'm an example of the abundance, the grace of God, because God, as an example to everyone else, has forgiven me, the chief among sinners. So the question is, Paul, what are you, man? The supreme example of good works or the supreme example of God's grace because you're the worst of sinners? And Paul would say, yes. Why? Why? Because attaining or attempting to attain salvation by way of works is the antithesis of the gospel. So this testifies to the grace of God. Because I put my glory entirely in myself before meeting Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. That's why it's wondrous. Do you know what else Paul is also doing here? He's also doing what he wrote of in verse 3. Remember the aspect, we are the true circumcision? What he's doing here is he's boasting in Jesus. He's glorifying Jesus. He's like, I used to do this, and then I met Jesus. And it's better by far. The question that I want to pose to you, Tri-City, is do you share Paul's passion? As a ministry exists for this reason, to make much of Jesus. Not just as a ministry, individually, our call as individuals coming together corporately is to boast in Jesus. That's our call. We are to make much of Jesus. You exist to make Jesus known as a ministry. But I want to make sure that that's something that each and every one of you need to own if, in fact, it is. I mean, in other words, you don't exist as a ministry so your, com- your commute to church can be shorter. I, I don't want to break, I hate to break that to you, sort of, but that's not, that's, that's not going to be on your sign. I hope, I hope that's not on your sign. You don't exist because your kids can be, can be taken care of, and you don't exist because you have friends here. 
In fact, you don't even live here because it's cheaper to live here than Cole Harbor or Yale Town. Although it is, it's a lot cheaper. All of those things may be great side benefits. And I, I do, I think they are side benefits. I think all of that. Being in a church, in your community, having friends, having your kids taken care of, seeing them grow in faith, having a place that you can call home for, for a good... I think all of those are great things, all of them good side benefits. But again, that's not why you exist. You exist to make Jesus known. And as I said, you don't live here because it's cheaper. You live here because in God's providence and sovereign grace, he appointed you for this time in this place. You don't actually make that decision. So he has you for a reason, with a call, with a mission to make Jesus known. And you know why? Because there are people filling up this area who are working their butts off to try to attain whatever this world offers. And your goal, my goal, our goal is to tell them about Jesus before it's too late. That's why you exist. That's why we all exist. That's our purpose in life. Paul goes on in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost. So not just who I was, I, everything is lost. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, it's important to note that verse 8 isn't a contradiction against what Paul had just said. It's simply the view from the flip side. This is Paul addressing the cost of following Jesus from a worldly perspective. Is there a cost from a worldly perspective to following Jesus? Well, the answer is there is a great cost. Not only a cost, a call. A call to live our, to, to, uh, to, to die to ourselves, to live as Christ, as Paul says, to die, to die is gain. And what Paul is saying here is affirming that because of Jesus, he had in reality suffered the loss of all things. Just think about it. Because of Jesus, Paul lost position, power, prestige, prestige, reputation, access, money, and invites, at the very least. But not only that, consider what Paul gained for the sake of Christ. Let me give you another resume that Paul gives coming out of 2 Corinthians 11. Here's what he gained. He gained scorn. He gained labors. He gained imprisonments and beatings and lashes and stonings and shipwrecks and dangers and toils and hardships and sleeplessness and hunger and thirst and cold and exposure. Paul would never say the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. He would never say that. Constant danger. For the sake of Christ. So he lost that, he gained that, he must have had a ton of regret. Hey, he must have laid up at night looking at the stars, thought, what, what did I do? I mean, what did I give up to get this? He must have had a ton of regret. Only the opposite. And looking back, he concludes that in spite of all of it, that in comparison to what he received in Christ, it was all just so much rubbish. Not a, not a regret at all. Paul used to boast in his 
pedigree. Now he boasts in his sufferings for the sake of Christ. It's wondrous. How though? How do you do that? That makes no worldly sense. And it shouldn't. It shouldn't. And doesn't. So Paul tells how. We want to know how. Verses 9 to 11. And I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. If you like underlining phrases in your Bible, that is an important one. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection. I may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So that's how. But let's neat-nick it a little bit and make sure we understand it. So when Paul was saved by Jesus, what he tells us in these verses is that he gained four things by way of that relationship. Let me give them to you. Four things that are ours too. Here are the four things that we gain by way of Jesus, if we know Jesus as our Savior. First, Jesus' righteousness. Verse 9, a righteousness that is ours only by faith. So it's a gracious gift. How do we receive it? By faith. We believe it. We receive it. It's a righteousness that can't be earned, in other words. So stop trying. Don't try anymore. Just rest. Go home today, watch golf, fall asleep on the couch, rest. It's the best way to spend a Sunday afternoon. That's what golf was created for on TV, to help us take a nap. I love golf, but it's always a good nod or offer. So righteousness that can't be earned, a righteousness that must be given then. But, and here's the last that I want you to note about the righteousness that is ours by Jesus. It's a righteousness that is altogether necessary. Do you know being forgiven of your sins won't get you into heaven? That heaven doesn't simply accept forgiven people? Heaven only accepts absolutely perfect people. Righteous people. So how does that take place? I thought I just had to have my sins forgiven. No, that's the starting point. So Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. He did that. But it's not simply that we are forgiven of our sins. We need to have perfection on us. We have to be perfect. So how does that come? Jesus gives us his. He gives us what? He gives us his perfect life. You see, when you come to faith in Christ, your sins aren't only forgiven. Jesus' perfection is planted on you. You aren't simply a forgiven person. You're a person that is seen by God as, have, have ne- as having never done anything wrong and only right. Think about that. And it's necessary for us to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus says, I'm going to give you by faith my perfection and I'm going to take your imperfection on me. That's the gospel. So that's first. That's how God views you now if you're in Christ. As having done everything altogether right. Because of Jesus. Secondly, Jesus' power. 
So how do we live this out? Well, it's by way of the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That power, the power in us, by way of the residence of the Spirit in us. So that's how. We can't do it. In the same way that we can't earn our salvation is the same way that we can't attempt to live this out in our own strength. What was begun by the Spirit is carried on by the Spirit. So our call is feed the Spirit, feed the Spirit, feed the Spirit. And it pours out of us. But we've got to fight for it. The third is Jesus' resurrection. Paul refers to the resurrection of Jesus in verse 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11, excuse me. A, a resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus that secures ours. That's why we don't mourn like those who have no hope. Because the resurrection of Jesus will be our resurrection too. He the first fruits, we the harvest to come. And then fourthly, Jesus' likeness. Jesus' likeness. A likeness, so the question is, and remember I'm trying to answer this question, how do we do this? Because there's a working in us towards Christ's likeness and what you've already seen in your study of the book of Philippians is that it is a metamorphosis that's already started. Philippians 1.6, I pray for you, knowing this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. It's a promise. Because what God starts, he finishes. And as we see in Philippians 2, as we work out, God works in for his good pleasure. And what's that working in? Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. So you go, I want more of this. Like, I want more of this. And I'm empowered. I'm empowered. And I'm, I'm getting more of Jesus. And I want more of Jesus. But here's how it, it ends. It's a transformation that rests, did you notice it? On our sharing in Christ's suffering. One day we will share his glory. But on this side of heaven, Jesus calls us to share his pain. Why? Why? For we will never experience intimacy with Christ and the transformation of Christ apart from sharing the way of Christ, which is the way of the cross. That's why. As Jesus says in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, you could read this on the screen behind me, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. What reward? What's the greatest reward we get in heaven? Jesus. And when we see Jesus, what do we get? We become like him. Wonder of wonder. Wonder of wonders. How would Paul know any of this? How could he state this with such assurance? Well, the answer is it was his experience. Paul's a practitioner. He doesn't just speak in theory. He's lived it. He had suffered the loss of all things, but he came to realize that Jesus was more than enough. I can do all things. How, Paul, how can you do all things through Christ? What kind of things, Paul? I can be content with nothing. Through Christ, he gives me strength. He had learned by way of his sufferings the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Only suffering can do that. But he wanted more, right? He wanted more. He knew Jesus, and he said, I want to know Jesus. Paul, you know Jesus. No, I want more Jesus. I want to know more. 
I want to know more. He wanted to know Jesus more, and he knew that kind of knowing meant more suffering. And he was fine with it. Why? For to live is Christ and to die is gain. That was his mantra. The question as I wrap up is, what's, what's your mantra? What's mine? Do we share his? If you remember at the beginning of our time, I said, I'm going to double back to verse 1. I said, just remember some of the things we said. I told you to take note of the instruction, rejoice in the Lord. Then I said, note the promise, you'll be safe. So when we rejoice in the Lord, we will be safe. Now, why did I say we would come back to it? Because verses 2 to 11 simply flesh out verse 1. So Paul is calling the Philippians to rejoice. It will be safe for them. And he's saying, let me show you how to do that. Let me show you what's gone on in my life. In my life, I look back to that. That says lost. I have Jesus. It's better by far. And I want more of Jesus. I want more of Jesus. I want more of Jesus. And as I seek Jesus, pursue Jesus, provide safety for me. So to us. For we have an enemy that attempts us, tempts us, excuse me, to, to look back to Egypt. You know what I mean? Remember, Egypt was pretty good, man. Instead of taking or focusing our eyes, excuse me, on the promised land. We have an enemy that tries to dupe us into thinking the cost is too much, the reward is too little. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in who Jesus is and who you are in Jesus and what he has done for you and what he saved you from. Rejoice in the Lord and it will prove safe for you. So as I close, can I encourage you that when those times of temptation come, rejoice in the Lord for everything else in comparison to Jesus is just so much rubbish. Let me pray. And we declare that, Jesus, it is. Not that there aren't good things here, Jesus. You give us good things. But when we make them ultimate things, when we rest our eternality on them, our salvation on them, you're rubbish. You're rubbish. So I pray for those that are resting their security, their salvation, their hope on those things that you would shine into dark places this morning, shine into dark places, help them to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. I pray. And for those who are here who have said yes to you, Jesus, but maybe the eyes are getting distracted, maybe looking back, maybe not hungering and yearning and, and, and seeking and wanting and craving you enough. The things of this world are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and there's this question, this wrestle internally. I pray that it will come back to you. For you are a God of grace. Give grace after grace after grace after grace. And not simply forgiving grace, strengthening grace. Strengthening grace to help us in times of need and temptation, to resist and to find joy in you. So I pray for those here that know you, that they would be strengthened by way of your grace today. That Jesus, you would increase in them. They'd only want more and more and more. Please, bless this ministry, I pray. Bless this ministry, I pray. Use them to make a deep impact in this area of the city an area desperate. Pray that you'd use them. That you'd become more, they'd become less. 
for the sake of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.